You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hello, Served Up friends. I am thrilled to introduce you to Urvashi Batnagar. Urvashi is a healthcare executive whose career spans from all sectors of healthcare, physical medicine, rehabilitation, advocacy, and strategy. She is a co-author of a new book, The Sustainability Scorecard, How to Implement and Profit from Unexpected Solution. Urvashi truly believes that global wellness can be achieved through sustained and intentional investment in products and processes. My takeaway from my conversation with Urvashi is we absolutely need the mindset that everything we consume and dispose of impacts health and healthcare. Now sit back, grab your favorite healthy non-alk beverage and get inspired. Urvashi, thank you so much for joining me today on Served Up. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, so great to have you. I've been looking forward to this conversation. And for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were you born? Where were you raised? And, you know, talk to us a little about the the young Urvashi. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, born in India, in New Delhi specifically. Uh, that's where I was raised. I did spend time between Long Island, New York, and India, oddly enough, during my childhood. Um, and it was wonderful. I loved every minute of it. Uh, definitely experienced both cultures. And uh, of course, now I live in the DC area uh, and love the work that I do in population health. Um, but yes, that's a little bit of my background. And definitely my youth has, uh, and growing up in two different countries has shaped not only who I became, who I became as an adult, um, but my perspective on the world, because it helped me see, it helped, I think my youth helped me identify that I really wanted to be in healthcare. Um, and definitely growing up in India, you can see the impact of climate change and uh, the impact of environmental and social determinants of health on people's everyday well-being, um, being a developing nation, a lot more starkly than you can here in the U.S. And uh, and that's just just the broad because of the broad economic factors. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's a little bit about my youth and how I how I got into healthcare. What brought you to the U.S.? Well, interestingly, I had an accident aboard a ship. Um, my dad was in the Merchant Marine at the time. Um, I was a very curious child and through a set of circumstances, ended up getting injured on the ship. 
that he was um, he was working on as a chief engineer. And because it was a medical emergency, I actually ended up coming to the U.S. for medical treatment. I was airlifted here. Oh, my God. Um, Yes. And had a number of surgeries for hand reconstruction um, and physical therapy for a long period of time. Um, And, you know, just that uh, journey was a very big part of my childhood because I had an accident when I was five. Um, And so it was a period of great change and learning and growing up. Um, And I left the U.S. uh, to go back to India once all of my treatments were over when I was 12, a little bit over 12. And so I have numerous friends here in the U.S. And, you know, usually it's the opposite story where people uh, arrive here from other countries a little bit later in life. I kind of went back, um, but I had this interesting departure from uh, perhaps what my life's trajectory would have been uh, because Mm -hmm. of my accident. Um, And certainly was really challenging at the time, probably more for my parents and my relatives that were surrounding me than me, because I think children um, are, or at least I was inherently optimistic and uh, sort of this, uh, my accident was just another thing, you know, that was happening in my life. I was more concerned with uh, playing and exploring Mm -hmm. the outdoors and all kinds of things. And this was another thing I was working on. So I was at that age, like five or six, you don't really grasp how serious this can be and what are the long-term implications of a chronic um, illness or injury and things like that. Um, But of course, as I grew up and understood more about uh, what I was dealing with, I, I think at a very early age started to understand Um, Not only, you know, from a patient's perspective with a chronic injury or issue, uh, what that means for your future outcomes, how to best improve your personal outcomes and things like that. Um, But I didn't realize then that I had this very broad view of the healthcare ecosystem that perhaps other individuals don't have. I learned it because I was constantly engaging with a multidisciplinary team. I understood issues with payers and um, legal contracts and how certain surgeries were going to get paid for and how can care be adjusted such that we can keep total cost of care down. These are very big things that people discuss probably, you know, well into their advanced academic career Mm -hmm. um, in healthcare that I sort of just knew at a at a really formative age, very young age. I mean, I think of my son is 11, you know, and I couldn't imagine um, him going through that most of his childhood. So you went. So you were in, in a position where I guess you could kind of be freed from, you know, all the the therapies and the treatment. So you go back to India and, and then were you kind of did your um, finish your schooling there? Yeah. Before you, okay. So I um, I went back to India when I was a little bit over twelve. Uh, of course, finished my high school there um, and received my undergraduate education there. And I ended up getting a job in the U.S., which is how I came back. And um, but it was a really great time. I mean, it was. I think now that I look back at my younger self in almost like a third person perspective. I can see 
like the journey makes sense to me now. Um, and what I was focusing on at that time makes sense to me now because I went back to India and I finished all of my education, of course, or at least my formative education. Um, and it really sort of brought to light a lot of things that we study about in our in, in school and otherwise. Um, but uh, you see economics at play a lot more starkly. Um, as I mentioned, the social and environmental determiners of health, how, um, you know, when I started my career about 10, 15 years ago, and these were buzzwords like health equity, um, social determiners of health, uh, the fact that your surroundings and your social environment has a far greater impact on your health outcomes uh, rather than your one-time visit with your surgeon or your doctor or whoever, these were these are all things that we know about from academics and reading. Um, but it it really was such a rich informal and formal education on viewing those aspects at play. And I actually got very involved on the public health side of things at that time because of my formative experiences. Wow. It's true, right? I mean, it's one thing to read about it, learn about it in the books, but to actually live it, see it, breathe it, you know, it it gives you a whole nother perspective. And and for somebody that at such a young age kind of went through that system and and got to see um what that was, I'm sure that had a huge impact in in how you were able to apply what you were learning. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean I had wonderful experiences that I don't believe I would have had in, uh, in, in, in any other geography or any other situation. For example, I write about this in my book, but uh, when people ask me, what's your why? You know, there's so many reasons for why we pursue the professions that we do. Um, and I love healthcare. And, but when I think about it deeply, I realize that I had all these formative uh, experiences. And I happen to live in the one city where, uh, in, in New Delhi, where uh, there's this amazing hospital called St. Stephen's Hospital. It's very large. Um, and they have Asia's and India's largest post-polio ward. Um, and so uh, polio is eradicated now, of course. Um, but when I started my career, it was not. And so I had this incredible time working with a surgeon that was called out by Bill Gates as being a Gates hero in 2018. And um, so his name is Dr. Matthew Verghese. He's incredible. And he was doing this work when nobody was listening and nobody was looking and social media didn't exist. And so he established the largest uh, polio, post-polio lab in the world and did uh, reconstructive surgeries. And a lot of our work in PMNR, um, physical medicine and rehab, focused on helping these patients achieve the highest quality of life that they could and return to meaningful work um, and just achieve you know, their goals as, uh, as patients living with a chronic and degenerative condition. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so a lot of this work was, of course, you know, along the lines of like health sciences and stuff like that, but we very much focused on things like education, patient awareness, patient activation, health equity, um, just so many things that roll up to the umbrella of mm -hmm. social determiners of health and health equity, but it was 
an incredible education. And I, um, I'm so grateful for it. No, and I, I mean, those things are so important, right? Like we, I think we put so much emphasis in like the, the technical part of healthcare. And I could tell you, even for somebody, I am the worst, you know, at making sure that I, it, it stresses me out, you know, just making the appointments, making sure you go all the different reports that they give you. And, um, and I do recognize that it, it's a privilege, right? Being able to not only have accessibility to healthcare, but to be able to pay for it. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Like the inequities? And I know you talk about that um, a lot in your book. So I'd love to kind of, you know, hear your thoughts on, you know, your perspective on, on health as, as a right, like as a human right. Oh, healthcare is definitely a human right. I mean, it can't be any other way in my perspective. And interestingly for me, it goes back to Milton Friedman and, uh, and it amazes me. I, I wrote an op-ed on this. Um, <laughs> I, I need to post about on Milton Friedman's 52nd anniversary of his, uh, Nobel prize win in economics. But essentially what he talks about is that the, the primary responsibility of all employees and everybody that works at a firm is to improve the improve shareholder wealth. And from my perspective, if we view improving shareholder wealth as purely a financial metric, we're doing a disservice to our consumers who are investing in shareholder wealth. We're inherently not driving wealth by only focusing on the financial metrics of success. Um, we're missing out on the social and the environmental drivers of that fiscal responsibility. And so, for example, if we don't have robust, for example, if you're an ag tech or something like that, or um, the nutrition industry or uh, wherever, you, uh, which honestly, whichever industry you're in, um, re resources come from the earth. They, they come from the, something is growing in the soil that you're deriving it from, or there's rare minerals that you're extracting from the soil. Um, but the, these supply chains are complicated and they are all reliant at the end of the day on your resources and which geography they're coming from and the ability of that geography to sustain those resources. And then, so that's the environmental and the social aspect of that supply chain and the health of the workers and, and talent management and all of these things. So I think it's a very um, linear view of economics and, and how the world runs. Um, and what's always interesting to me, and Christine, I must mention Christine Bader, um, who's the incredible author of When Girl Meets Oil. Um, and uh, she was the first um, director of uh, corporate, corporate social responsibility at Amazon and has just had an incredible career. But I must say she was the first to bring this to my attention, which was that while the world has evolved and is working diligently and in a robust manner towards all of these things that we're talking about now. Um, every time there's an election or 
some crisis, uh, we continue to go back to this very linear um, talk about Milton Friedman and why our and and how a certain initiative or how a certain action is going to drive uh, the financial metrics. And those are the only things that are important. And we're not saying that they're not important. We're saying they are as important as the mm-hmm. drivers of those financial metrics, which which is the social and the environmental factors. And so if those factors aren't sustained, you're not going to keep up that fiscal wealth or fulfill your fiduciary responsibilities. And that perspective, that broader perspective of mine economically informs my view on healthcare, which is also systemic to say, uh, you know, healthcare is absolutely human right because it is the right of our talent and our employees and our shareholders and, uh, and, and our entire consumer base. And we need to expand the definition of performance. What's performance? Uh, if it's my toothpaste, then what's the difference between company A and company B producing toothpaste? It's, it's all, if, if you're going to say that I just want my teeth cleaned at the end of the day, uh, and then it doesn't matter what you buy. But if you're starting to segment on, um, you know, teeth whitening and ability to uh, prevent plaque and all of this stuff, and you also want it to be non-toxic and you don't want super high levels of fluoride or whatever it is that, you know, all the factors that you're considering. Now, don't you realize that you've gone beyond the functionality of the product? And so when it comes to healthcare, um, healthcare is a human right. And so as healthcare providers, whether you're a health system, a payer, um, a medical device, manufacturer or whatever, we tend to think of these, um, we, we tend to think of our products and our services as linear, um, one-time visits, provision of a device or whatever it is, and somehow forget that we're part of this broader economy, which has a supply chain. And once our products and processes meet an end of life, and if they're not disposed of properly, if you're flushing pills down the toilet because you can't be bothered to find the appropriate place to dispose of them or worse, which is actually more common. um, There's no robust collection mechanism that's convenient to patients and we're all patients. um, You're going to end up disposing of them in the most convenient way possible, which was either down your sink or toilet or in your trash can. And ultimately that's going to go either into a landfill or to a water body where it won't be able to be filtered out. And now we are all consuming each other's medications in a highly diluted form forever until we die. And this is what we call forever chemicals. Um, The the UN has a huge focus. The WHO has a huge focus on forever chemicals. There's a lot of amazing work going on in the space. Um, But there needs to be more momentum around this. And all this needs to be viewed as part of part of the broader ecosystem of healthcare, which is not disconnected from the broader economy. Yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, like everything is healthcare, right? Because everything impacts our health, everything that we consume, everything that we breathe. I mean, it, and, and you saying that just, 
it, it reminds me of um, today, one of our sinks isn't working very well. It's not draining, right? So I'm telling my husband and he's a lot more aware than I am. I, I try, um, you know, on being green and, and just, you know, taking care of the environment any way we can control it. And, you know, I'm like, the drain's not working. You know, we need to get the Drano and, you know, you need to buy Drano. And he's like, yeah, I'll get the Drano. It's like the only thing works. He's like, I just hate using it because it's so toxic. Right. So you're like pouring it into your drain and yeah, it's like unclogging your drain, but where does that go? That goes into our waterways and into the water system. And, you know, there's so many products like that, even products that we actually consume that are so detrimental to the environment. And I know you talk a lot about this in your book. It's like, how do you kind of sustain what we need and what humans need and, and even what they want in a long-term sustainable way? Like, is there a way to do it or are we just kind of doomed? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's like, that's almost like uh, where sometimes I listen to Elon Musk's interviews and, and, and then I think, okay, if I had to uh, respond back to him, I would say, Elon, life on earth has to be meaningfully extended in some way. And it's not going to occur just by taking people to Mars. Uh, and, and, you know, it, we can't just keep migrating as a species. Mm -hmm. um, and we can't also only just decarbonize. We need to meaningfully extend life on Earth by creating products that are benign by design and that are non-toxic to human health and the environment that supports our health. And in order to do that, the consumer actions is extremely important. So, um, People becoming individually uh, more aware and voting with our dollars in the economy is extremely important, of course. But I also think there has to be a huge action from uh, for-profit organizations. And, and I see that happening more and more, and I'm actually very excited by it. There's, uh, and you probably know from uh, your work in beverages, but... Uh, there's so much more consumer action now than there used to be. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, for example, when you look at the cosmetics industry, even, uh, or, or food, we don't want to buy things that are, you know, laced with wax or have certain impurities in them. And we check the back of the label to make sure that you don't get reproductive toxicity from your foundation and all of that. So there's a huge amount of consumer action that's now shaping go-to-market efforts on behalf of for-profit organizations. And what we can do from a sourcing and procurement perspective is really start shifting the focus in the supply chain to, uh, if, if you're large enough, then you can really pressure that supply chain and pressure certain ingredients out and innovate them out um, and, and really see the reward of that in your bottom line. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's, I mean, it, it definitely is a thing. And I see the shift, right. And in, in just the conversation. And, and I think when people used to talk about the environment and sustainability, it was just like, save the trees and the forest and, you know, carbon neutral. But I think to your point, there's so much um, more than that. And, and it really comes down to the consumer product goods. Cause we are a consuming 
world, right? We were just constantly consuming. And, um, and I always like to kind of put it back to, especially in this like capitalist world that we live in, it's okay, big companies, you know, take a bigger step, like really lead us. And I do see, you know, like even Beam Centauri, they, they really have an intentional effort on doing good, you know, down to their water supply for their scotches and their whiskeys and um, so much of what they do to give back uh, to, you know, social causes and especially in an industry that's so lucrative like alcohol. And, and that's something I always say is like, there's so much more room to do business for good. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I'm also like so excited about firms like Air Company, for example. And I don't know if you've ever worked with them, but they have a carbon negative vodka, which is really cool. And they've applied that technology to, you know, other products as well in the consumer goods space. And they have they created a very exciting um, carbon negative av- aviation fuel. So there's a lot of work in the space uh, to decarbonize and also ensure that our ingredient footprint is healthy. Yeah. And I actually read an article recently about even just like wine bottles, right? Like, it, and, and I tell people that a lot of the cost for a great bottle of wine goes into the actual bottle, <laughs> cost of the glass, the label, every little piece that puts together can end up costing more than the actual juice. And it's, and it's really to have this like whole experience and like pick up this heavy bottle and all of this stuff, but it's, it's all waste. Right. Yeah. Cause in the end, I think to what you compared with the toothpaste example, it's like, you just want your teeth clean. Like you just want good wine. Do you really need that heavy bottle and all that extra glass. So I know that there is a movement now, even in the wine industry that you start seeing and, and also like moving to screw top versus Mm. um, real cork and, you know, getting away from kind of what we think is supposed to be quality um, and, and relating that to actual sustainability as quality versus, you know, look and feel. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I do think in the future, uh, I mean, you see it with Generation Z already and how they're changing uh, spend of wallet, uh, how you, you see the footprint of that and how quality is becoming not only part of our transactions, but also a social currency. Yeah, absolutely. And and I just love that because I think it's, you know, it's it's like qualitative versus quantitative. And, you know, talk to us a little bit about uh, your book and and you mentioned it as like a scorecard, right? To show business leaders and innovators how to create breakthrough sustainable products and processes that are good for the planet. So frame that up for us. Like what is kind of, you know, and I was reading through some of the reviews and um, great reviews and people are like, oh my God, every CEO needs to read this. And I think especially in an environment, as you mentioned, with what the consumer is looking for. And in my space in beverage alcohol, there are so many 
more people getting into kind of that product space, right? And and wanting to create a consumer product good and leaning towards alcohol. I love it. Like, I feel like it's finally creating equity for so many people, but how would you kind of use your book? How would one use your book as the scorecard guideline if they were to get into starting a new brand and a new product to do it in a sustainable way early on? Yeah, thank you for asking. Great question. Um, so I would say, so at its heart, I would say our book is an innovation book. It's about innovation and scaling innovation. And so when you think about, uh, you know, startups and people focusing on products and really trying to differentiate themselves in the space, I would say say that it's about embedding sustainability into your corporate strategy. And when you do that, you view sustainability as another line item that needs to be incorporated versus another department or competency or another checkmark that'll occur once the entire product is developed or once a certain set of core things have been accomplished. So it's not, you know, something that uh, the marketing people are going to take care of or the cost accounting people are going to fulfill and evaluate through a risk lens, which is all important, by the way. We must talk about our successes. We must talk about uh, sustainability from a marketing perspective. We need to have a cost accounting view of this. We need to have uh, a risk management view of this. And I think that can't be ignored, obviously. But um, but when you when it's viewed strategically, so one, I think that our book is hopefully provides executives and business leaders and innovators um, a common language by which to evaluate their product and process and understand which area is ripe for impact and which product uh, can be introduced um, and scaled. I think for smaller organizations or people that are starting firms, um, it I think you know the the advantage there is that they're more agile and they'll be able to take advantage of the viability of uh, sustainability and think about it along sort of the four principles that we talk about, which is waste prevention, maximizing efficiency and performance, using renewable inputs, and ensuring safe degradation. So when you have product development occur in the very beginning um, and the budget is allocated, that's that initial phase is when, you know, that 70, 80 percent of the budget is accounted for. That's when we need to think about sustainability. We need to think about how are we preventing waste? Because, again, that's a reduction in our operating cost. We need to think about performance as a part of, you know, efficiency and performance as what the product accomplishes. Um, whether we're renew using renewable inputs, and of course, we'll be able to champion that at the end of the story. Um, and, and also thinking through the entire life cycle of that product to how it's going to degrade mm -hmm. and whether it's going to degrade safely. If not, what can we do about it? Um, is there a way we can collect, you know, end of life products? And looking at all of that is only to our advantage because it's money left on the table if you are, for example, a chip manufacturer or something like that. And uh, it's far easier and far more cost effective to collect these things and develop a connection, collecting mechanism for it um, versus, you know, just go ahead and mine new, uh, new rare earth materials and things like that. And I'm sure that's applicable uh, to CPG and beverages as well, where collection might be cheaper, the collection pathways might be cheaper than 
creating a whole new bottle and creating, uh, you know, and, and sourcing new cork and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I love those four principles and I'm, it, I, I think this is so relatable right now with, you know, you describing your book as, as a book for innovation and scale, right? Because that's really the space, um, in, in our space, the beverage alcohol space, right? Like you, you start small, but the goal is always to scale, right? And, and there's even our, some of our, you know, biggest brands, it's all about innovation every year, especially spirits. Like you have to come out with innovation every year to hit your growth numbers. And I feel that as suppliers come out with innovation, it's always, you know, it's around, trends or flavor and, and this, but it's not necessarily, um, focused around how can we be, how can this innovative product be more sustainable, um, and meet kind of those, those four pillars that you had mentioned. I know that you had mentioned this to me before that you had this like little passion for this industry. If you were to create your own brand following your principles, like what, and, and let's just say it would be in the beverage alcohol space. What is some kind of innovative vision that, that you would be able to use using your principles? Oh, wow. Um, interesting. I love that question. (laughs) (laughs) Putting you on the spot. I'm like, (laughs) I love it. Um, you know what? I think I would create a brand that I wanted to think about this a little bit to come back with like a refined product. But uh, but I wonder if I could create whether it's a beverage like a wine or something or or a food product that that can demonstrate to consumers how they're going to get more nutritional value out of what I've produced versus anything else in the market. And, um, and so if it's like a, for example, vodka or wine or whatever, that they would be able to maybe, uh, derive more, like maybe they would absorb more alcohol per unit, you know, and therefore consume less per glass, uh, and still achieve the same benefit or what they were looking for. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, uh, while being sustainable, and and I I would talk about the whole thing. I would talk about the economy of waste and how in the production of it uh, we've you know m- you know minimized packing and used recyclable material and used renewable inputs and ensured soil quality and ingredient quality so that they are in fact achieving their uh, their happy hour benefits sooner and therefore. We're spending less money per bottle or per glass. Um, I would have to think about this a little bit more as to like exactly what that product would be. But I, I'd try to create something that it could fulfill our scorecard and say that they were going to get more nutritional value out of it uh, and, and achieve higher performance uh, sooner. With less consumption. Yes, with less consumption. That's interesting because one of the newest fads are low elk. Yeah. So I think there's and and non-elk. Yes. So there is this um, 
I feel or there's one brand called Ritual, right? And yeah. it's, it's non-out and it's a whole line. And their whole thing is, well, we can still have that social gathering, happy hour, consuming, consuming without the alcohol, right? But how do you do it in a way where, again, you're not just wasting, um, but consuming in a good way without waste, um, but I, I like it. I feel like there's, there's something there. Yeah. Like how can you consume without waste and have no alcohol maybe, but maybe it provides you something else. Like maybe it provides you some nutritional value, uh, that you, so you're, it's, it's actually maybe a health drink that doesn't taste like a health drink. I mean, look at us actually doing some product brainstorming here. I know. <laughs> well, I've been, you know, we've just been, um, I've been on this kick. I've been talking to so many people that are really starting up new brands or whether they're in their ideating stage or they're in kind of that next step on, on wanting to scale. And there's a real consorted effort in our industry to um, really diversify you know, suppliers in this space because it's mm. it's kind of been, you know, very um a bit homogenous, right? With just the inequities and and whatever to actually get into the spirit um and wine space. So there is an effort now to really help diversify it. And there's just so much funding and support for minority and woman-owned um entrepreneurs that that want to build brands. So it's it's so fun. And I love just kind of hearing their ideas. And and I feel like our conversation is like a whole spin on it versus kind of what everybody else is talking about when they when they think of getting into to new BevAlk brands. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so thinking about like, you know, and women and, and minority owners and like double minorities, what if you're a minority and a woman? So, yeah. yeah. So like, uh, what about creating a product for women? Like, so for example, um, you know how there's, well, you know better than anyone else, like the the 0% alcohol um, beer and things like low that. Low carb, low carb. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm one of those. I love my Michelob Ultras. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I was I was Googling the other day and I was thinking, oh, this would be great because I'm 20 weeks at this point. I wonder what I can have. And I obviously don't want, you know, any risks to this baby. And I was thinking, okay, well, I know I know that you can have a glass of wine a month or whatever the whatever it is, but I was like, eh, it doesn't matter. I can hold out. Um and so uh, but when I was reading the articles on it, uh it, it talked about how, you know, uh, alcohol can may still be present in the product, but it's just it's it's less than one percent or it's like uh 0.9 or 0.8 and therefore uh they can still write zero percent i wonder if someone can create like a completely alcohol-free beverage for pregnant women to also feel included in these low alk no alk hangouts yeah and i i think that's something actually um my my manager uh, Chris, shout out Chris, um, <laughs> mentioned that is, you know, he was, they were with their group of friends. One of the wives is pregnant, but she wants to partake. She wants to, you know, kind of be a part of the action, but like who wants to just sip water or iced yeah. tea, right? Like, and so 
restaurants and bars are actively creating like non-out cocktails and kind of, you know, yes. cre- and, and there's so many great ones. Actually, my, my husband ordered a, um, I have one of the coasters here, uh, Gia, G-H-I-A, um, which is a non-alc bitter and it's oh. delicious. You just, it's like, if you like Aperol spritzes and stuff, you just, it's like an actual, um, a bitter like, and made with a bunch of different herbs and, you know, different roots and stuff. And you just put it over ice with some sparkling water and it feels like you're having a cocktail. And I think I kind of feel like the product is there, but it's like, how do you, how do you bring that, um, that experience or that create that moment so that people can relate with it and, and know that that's available. Yeah, exactly. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's interesting how you phrase that because at the end of the day, it feels like it's about experience, right? Because there's a whole population out there, like all these large segments of the population that are being excluded from an experience. And so it's about improving customer experience. And so if we're trying to improve their experience, increase like uh, customer satisfaction and long-term customer value and that kind of thing, it makes sense to not only be inclusive to these entire populations with these products, but also make them nutritious. Yeah. I like the nutritious part. And I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about as well, and I know we're, we're getting closer to time, but maybe we can squeeze it in towards the end because it's been such a big topic of conversation with, you know, all of our fellow chief sisters, um, is the space around femtech and, and just feminine woman's health in general. Right. I feel like, you know, and I think we all know, and, and you you agree, is that, that we just don't know enough about our health, especially as we get older and we start, you know, experiencing stages of menopause and and there's just not enough investment in that space. Like perhaps there could be a beverage that helps with the menopause process. Exactly. I mean, and that's really creative. at the same time and educates you at the same time while you consume. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. And I mean, oh, that's that's brilliant. But um, that's what, exactly what we need more of, like to be healthcare, to be viewed, like you mentioned, as a part of this broader economy and a product like that would do, achieve that. Right. Um, and it would increase, you know, awareness and that kind of thing. And yeah. And I, I mean, it, it, I'm sure this whole problem statement has something to do with the fact that women were excluded from the broader economy or were not rising to the highest levels, uh, you know, fast enough or were leaving the workforce when they were having kids. And therefore, our perspectives weren't heard. and, and, And it affects everything. It affects the economy. It affects how households spend their dollars. Um, it affects your own awareness about your own body and the underfunding in women's health, it, even in health systems and regulation, it affects everything. And so I think that femtech movement is extremely important. And, and I love the fact that it can be broadly applied to 
I mean, it's industry agnostic, uh, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Yeah, it's like fem gen, fem generation or fem century, whatever we want to call it. But you're you're so right. I feel like as women, when we go through these different stages of our life, whether it's, you know, um, our whether it's women going through puberty and and having to deal with kind of your menstrual cycle and then pregnancy and 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 then menopause it's like we're just kind of like put to the side like okay you're going to disappear for a while and we're going to just act like you're not here and society just keeps moving on instead of being inclusive to these kind of natural occurrences that make women so incredibly amazing and and have them be a part of you know some these solutions and i and i feel like we're we're at the cusp of that like i feel like that's finally starting to happen cuz women are speaking up and they're speaking out yeah i totally agree and what's interesting is that when you think about it in terms of like the opportunity what's amazing is that all these people who were so cons- Concerned about, you know, the fiduci- their fiduciary duty and like increasing shareholder wealth completely ignored half the population's experience and c- customer satisfaction. And the fact that they had no place to spend their dollars for improving their own experience. Yeah. And it's it's so true. They were just kind of looking down that same hole, looking for a different result. Right. Instead of kind of opening up and like, oh, well, here's half a population that we haven't spoken to or included. Um, Like talk about incremental opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's it's definitely money left on the table that needs to be captured. Well, I feel like we've just kind of scratched the surface on (laughs) some deeper conversations that we can have. Absolutely. This has been so fun. It has. Urvashi, so tell our listeners um, where they can find your book. So, um, yeah, you can find my book wherever you uh, buy books. So uh, it's called The Sustainability Scorecard, How to Implement and Profit from Unexpected Solutions. Um, My co-author is wonderful. I must shout him out. Um, Paul Anastas, his research is incredible and is the basis for our work. Um, And we've both actively collaborated on the scorecard that we uh, put together. Um, And then our forwards by the incredible Mark Terpanning, who's co-founder of Tesla. Um, And yeah, we're available in Barnes and Nobles and just wherever you buy your books and Amazon. Um, And I'd love to hear what our readers think about the book. So don't forget to leave me a review on Goodreads or Amazon. Absolutely. Well, I feel like I got kind of a behind the scenes um, on your book. I'm going to get myself a copy and read it because I feel like I can come out with like the next most amazing innovative brand and, you know, can retire for good. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think we we write about like decaf coffee in there. And Mm -hmm. so like we definitely touch upon the beverages industry as well. So I'd be really excited to see what people think about when they read this. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your perspective. Um, I agree with you 100%. I think healthcare is a human right and we can all do better. 
Absolutely. I agree. And we need to keep innovating in order to ensure that we all have access and delivery of the highest quality care, whether that comes from your health system or whether that comes from your beverages. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Ravashi. And um, we look forward to chatting with you again. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!